Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I want to invite you to open your Bible or turn on your Bible, however you do that, to Galatians chapter 6. As we conclude the book of Galatians this morning, and I want to begin by asking you a very deeply theological question, and that is, have you ever known a pompous windbag? You know that person who is always talking about themselves. They always have to be right. They're never wrong. They're always talking about their accomplishments, their accolades. They're boasting about themselves. I thought we'd have a little fun this morning. We don't often I get to do some fun things, but Don and mine's favorite comedian is Brian Regan. And maybe you've seen the little sketch, The Me Monster. If you haven't seen The Me Monster, we're going to watch a brief clip of that this morning to set the stage for our time together. So let's watch the video together and get our hearts prepared. <laughs> All right. Have you ever known a me monster? Beware the me monster. There's something within the human condition that wants to brag, to boast, to put yourself before others. And so the question is, why do I bring up bragging, boasting, trying to better other people this morning? Because our passage today in Galatians hits it head on. We finish up the book of Galatians this morning. And as we finish, it's been a good journey that we've been over the past few months. And so we bring this to a conclusion. And let's hear the word of the Lord this morning from Paul. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in the flesh, in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So here's the big idea. Here's the main point for Paul this morning of our passage of Scripture. It is this. You should joyfully obsess in the cross of Christ above everything else. You should joyfully obsess in the cross of Christ above everything else. Now, this language sounds a little funny to you, to obsess. I thought obsessing was something negative. Why do I bring up the word obsess in the cross? Well, we're going to see that this morning. Now, notice how Paul starts. 
In verse 11, he says, I'm writing with really large letters with my own hand. Now, back in that culture, they would have secretaries who would write the letters for them. Kind of like we have a paralegal today that would put together a legal brief, and then at the end of the letter, the actual person would maybe make a few comments and then sign it with his own or her own hand. And so Paul is probably using a secretary here to dictate to that secretary what to write down in the letter. It's still coming from Paul, but another person's writing it down. But at the very end of the letter, Paul uses his own hand, and he writes with really big letters. And so the question is, why did Paul write with really big letters? Well, some have said, well, he had poor eyesight, so he had to write big because he couldn't see. Others said because of all of his uh, travels where he got persecuted and he got beaten, that maybe his hand was shriveled and that's the only way he could write with big letters because he couldn't really control his, his fine motor skills. But what most scholars believe is the reason he's writing with such big letters is because he wants to make a point at the very end of the letter. You guys tell me, on Facebook or when you're sending an email, and maybe you don't know this, when you use all caps, what are you doing? You're yelling at the person, okay? You're trying to make a point. When you underline something or you highlight something, you're trying to draw attention to it. So most scholars believe that at the end of the letter here, Paul is somewhat writing with big letters to say, Galatians, I'm at the end of the letter. You need to pay attention You need to understand fully what I'm trying to communicate. And so as he brings the letter to a close, he's going to address some of the major themes that he's addressed throughout the entire book. And he's going to address these Judaizers one more time. Now, we've talked about these Judaizers. These are these false teachers from Jerusalem that came down and were trying to add circumcision on top of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so for this morning, as we conclude the book of Galatians, what I want us to do is I want us to observe three final truths that Paul gives us that tie the entire book together. Three final truths. And here's truth number one. And this is something we've seen on our journey through Galatians. Here it is. First, human-centered religion focuses on external duty and self-sufficiency. Can we get that up on the screen? Uh, Human-centered religion focuses on external duty and self-sufficiency. Now, notice what Paul says in verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would have forced you to become circumcised. It is those. Paul's addressing these Judaizers one last time. Now, who were these Judaizers? Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they're saying, these Judaizers... You can't be saved unless you add a man-made external religious duty on top of faith alone. And in that case, it was circumcision. Now, we see three things about these men that help us understand man-made religion, human-centered religion, self-sufficiency. How does Paul describe these Judaizers? Well, he gives three descriptions. The first thing he tells us about them is that they were self-promoters. They were self-promoters. Promoters. That's what 
humans intend to do. They like to promote ourselves. We like to boast about ourselves. We like to, to draw attention to ourselves. Notice what he says. It is those who want to make a good showing. A good showing. I don't know what your translation says. That's probably a good translation. A good showing. It comes from two words in the original language. A good face. To put on a good face. To put on a good front. To, to make a good impression. So here's the point Paul's saying. These Judaizers are all about numbers, all about appearance. They want to get you converted. They want to get you circumcised. They don't really care about your soul that much. They just want to get you circumcised so they can go back to Jerusalem and brag about how many people they converted. It's all about numbers. It's all about bragging and boasting. It's all about elevating themselves to make a good impression. Now, I know not many of you, or probably not most of you, are pastors. But I can tell you that there's an inherent danger when pastors get together and talk about ministry. When pastors get together and talk about ministry, I can guarantee you one of the first questions that a pastor will ask when you meet them for the very first time and you talk about your church, what question do you think they ask you? How many are you running? How many do you have in your church? How big is your church? And here's what I say. I, I'm real sneaky. I said, well, you know, we're a little, little under 1,000. <laughs> well, we're under 1,000, but no, I, I just kind of play the game with them. Usually I say it's not my church, it's the Lord's church. But it's amazing how many times when people get together, they want to inflate themselves, they want to compare, they want to, they want to boost their numbers. And that's what's going on here. They're trying to promote themselves. They have this craving for self-promotion as opposed to Christ promoting Christ and Christ alone as the focus. And Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 28. Paul says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of law. You're only right with God by faith not by any works. There's no room for boasting. So that's number one. They were self-promoters. But secondly, Paul says they are religious hypocrites. They were religious hypocrites. Notice in verse 13, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They're self-promoting. They want to boast in you. They want to boost their numbers, but they themselves aren't even keeping the law. They themselves are, are holding themselves up as this, this stellar example of morality and religion. And Paul says even they're not upholding the law. They're not even living up to their own standard of morality. You see, it was an external religion. External religion is dangerous because it's comfortable. But what God is after is your heart. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, 6 through 7, Jesus is, he's talking about the Pharisees in this context, but notice what he says. Jesus said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You can worship Jesus with your lips. You can look good on the outside. You can go through all the motions, but your heart can be very far from them. 
And people who have never had this inward change of the gospel, those that are just religious, they gravitate towards external religion. They gravitate towards the externals. Because the externals don't really get down to the heart. They never get down to repentance. They never get down to the the true meaning of what it means to have a relationship with Christ. It's all about just a duty. It's about looking good to others. It's about going through the motions so that you look good to others. So, number one, they're self-promoters. They're drawing attention to themselves. They're boasting about themselves. Number two, they're religious hypocrites. But number three, notice the third description that Paul gives. They were ashamed of the cross. At the end of verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They were trying to avoid persecution. They were trying to avoid the offense of the cross. They they didn't want to preach the true gospel that offends. Now, the cross is offensive. Paul says that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, For the word of the cross, the message of the cross, is folly. That word folly means moronic, offensively moronic to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 23, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. In that culture of the day, the word cross was actually like a cuss word. You didn't use it in polite conversation. You did not use it in, it was a vulgar word, the cross. And basically what they said was, if you were hung on the cross, you were hung on what was they called the unlucky tree. You were on the unlucky tree. You didn't want to talk about the cross. What does the cross tell us? Why is the cross offensive? The cross says, you are a sinner separated from God. You cannot save yourself, and you need Jesus to die in your place as the only way to get you to heaven. The world does not want to hear that message because it's offensive to them. Go back to Galatians 2.21 for a moment. Just turn back in your Bibles. Works of the law, getting people circumcised. If If all the Judaizers had to do was to get these people circumcised, then there was no need for the cross. It's just a religious duty. Notice what Paul says in Galatians 2.21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. There was no reason for Jesus to die if it all is religion. And then Galatians 3.13. Look at Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. One of my favorite quotes in the Galatians commentary that I've been using from John Stott. John Stott's one of my favorite authors and pastors. I've learned a lot from him over the years. He's gone to be with the Lord. He was a a minister in England. But listen to what he says. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have all visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. See, why is the cross offensive? The cross is offensive to non-religious people. 
The cross is offensive to non-religious people because it tells non-religious people that they're sinners in need of Jesus and Jesus is the only way of salvation and that they need to repent and believe in him. And we can understand how the cross can be offensive to non-religious people, but the cross is just as offensive to religious people. Because the cross says to religious people, it doesn't matter how religious or how moral or how good you try to compare yourself to somebody else, you need Jesus just as much. You're just as much of a sinner, no matter how moral or religious you think you are. You see, here's what the cross says. The cross of Jesus emphatically yells at us, we are all helpless, hopeless, and hell-bound without Jesus. And that's an offensive message. You see, you're not going to offend anybody if you preach that Jesus was a moral teacher that helps improve your life. Oprah teaches that. Jesus was a moral teacher who can help improve your life. You're not going to get any resistance. But when you start to talk about sin and repentance and the need for a blood sacrifice and Jesus is the only way and our helpless state and that we're all under God's justice without Jesus, that's where it gets offensive. And these Judaizers don't want to go there. They don't want to go there. So they are religious hypocrites. They're ashamed of the cross and they're self-promoters. And that's really what self-centered religion is all about. It's, it's self-sufficiency. It's self-aggrandizement. It's boasting about ourselves. It's putting stock in ourselves. It's what we can accomplish. It's what we can do. It's boasting in ourselves. That's the first thing we see in this passage of Scripture. And that's the Judaizers. That's, that's false religion. All right, let's look at the second thing we see in this passage of Scripture. The second thing we see, the gospel of Christ focuses on a radical inward transformation of the heart. The gospel is not about externals. It's not about self-sufficiency. It's not about self-help. It's about a radical inward transformation of the heart. Now notice what Paul says there in verse 14. Far be it from me to boast. May it never be. Some translations say, God forbid that I do anything else but boast in the cross. And this was Paul's heartbeat. It was his passion. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. Paul says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me. Paul's saying, listen, if I don't preach the gospel, I am not doing what God's called me to do. I am bound by duty. Far be it from me to boast. Now, what does it mean to boast? That word boast. In your Bible, it may jump out at you. God's telling us to boast? To boast in the cross. What does it mean to boast? Well, to boast means to find your joy, to find ultimate confidence, to glory in. Literally, to obsess in. There's no real English equivalent to this Greek word. It means to put all of your stock in it to the point of obsession. Above anything else that you enjoy, that you love, that you worship, it's Jesus. And you find joy in his cross. You boast in that. You glory in that. Paul gives us permission to boast in Jesus and in the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.31 So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're going to boast, if you're going to brag, if you're going to talk about something that you obsess about, that you enjoy, that that drives you, 
we have permission from the Bible to have that be Jesus, front and center above all things. 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I want you to think about all the things that our culture boasts in. What is our culture glory in? What does our culture obsess over? I mean, we could probably come up with a great list. I've, I've listed some things out here. Physical abilities, athletic prowess, military power, oratorical abilities, intellectual accomplishments, political influence, monetary and financial success, social status, entertainment celebrities, all these things... Some of them aren't necessarily bad, but if you boast or brag or obsess over these things, Paul says the one thing that he boasts in is Jesus and the cross and the gospel and his salvation. You see, there's only really two religious systems in the world. There's only really two religious worldviews. There's a religion of self-boasting, and there's the gospel of Christ-boasting. There's really no other alternative. You're either elevating yourself, you're boasting about yourself, you're glorying in yourself, you're putting yourself at the center, or it's about Jesus. And you're putting Jesus at the center, and you're glorying in Jesus, and you're finding your joy in him. So you see, to boast in the cross means you give up all hope and trusting in yourself. You give up all attempts at trying to be religious or trying to be moral or trying to be good or trying to do anything, and you simply trust in Christ alone as your all in all to save you. It's a radical, life-transforming issue. Now, Paul's going to talk about the radical. Now, now, why do we use the word radical? Do you guys know where the word radical comes from? I'm going to teach you some Latin this morning, okay? You can go away going, I learned some Latin today. Radix is the Latin word for root. That's where we get the word radical. Radical means to go down to the root, to go down to the very depth. So, so the cross gets to the very depth of your heart. It does something radically, inwardly transformative in your life. So the first thing we see here that Paul says is that the cross creates a sharp separation from the world. A sharp separation. So much so that Paul uses some very strong language here. Some death language. Notice what he says there. Verse 14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been, look at his language, crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, I've been, I've been cut off. I've been crucified. I've been separated from the world and the world's been separated from me. Now, what is the world? Does that mean Paul stopped living on planet earth? No, the world is that satanically influenced system of godless values and culture and worldview, this present age that's dominated by sin. And Paul says, that's done. I've been crucified to that. He says it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. To boast on the cross means this. 
It means repentance. It means a sharp separation from your old life, your old values, your old priorities, your old passions, maybe even your old friendships, your old habits, whoever you were before you make a separation that Paul says a crucifixion, a death. You've died to that old life. Go back to chapter 5, verse 24. Paul uses this crucifixion language earlier. Chapter 5, verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So there he says that they've crucified the flesh. Here he says, I've been crucified to the world. Interesting verb tense in the original language, crucified. We don't have it in our English, trans, our English tense. It's, it's called the perfect tense in the Greek. It means this. At one point in time, you had a definitive separation or crucifixion from the world when you became a Christian, but you continue ongoingly to be crucified and separated from the world. So it's not just this one-time thing. It is, I have made a definitive break from the world, and I am new. So the first thing Paul tells us about the radical nature of the cross is it's it's a separation, a radical separation, a crucifixion from your old way of life. And if that's happened to you, what makes sense is the second thing he says here. The second truth that Paul tells us about the radical nature of the cross is not only is it a a separation or a crucifixion from your old life or the world, he says, number two, what really counts is a new creation. Look at verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. What really counts is a new creation. A new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. To boast in the cross means that you have been changed and transformed into a new creation. I like what Tim Keller says about this. He, He has an interesting statement comparing the the Judaizers to the gospel here in this passage of Scripture. Listen to what Tim Keller says. The gospel is inside out. The interchange of heart that leads to new motivation and conduct of behavior. The gospel is inside out. The Judaizers are outside out. They're outside out. Focusing on behavior, never dealing with the heart, and always remaining superficial. Now what's the new creation? It encompasses your entire salvation. The new creation started in regeneration when the Holy Spirit caused you to be born again. When the Holy Spirit invaded your heart and caused you to be born again and caused you to be a new creation in Christ, that started your journey in faith. But the Holy Spirit continues to live in you and he helps you to say no to sin. He helps you walk in holiness. He creates the fruit of the Spirit in you. He helps you to walk in step with the Spirit. And so not only is it your initial salvation where you became a new creation, but it's the ongoing process of being renewed. And guess what? One day... We will be glorified in new bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. So the new creation encompasses the entirety of your salvation from beginning to end. The moment when you were first born again to the moment you step foot in heaven and you are totally new. It's a radical transformation from the inside out. 
God has to do this work deep in your heart. Which means that the way that you're right with God is not by any external thing you do. You're not right with God. You're not inwardly changed. You're not made radically new by baptism. It's important, but baptism. Church attendance is important, but that doesn't do it. Being a good person, that's important, but that doesn't do it. Obeying the golden rule, that's important, but that doesn't do it. Being spiritual, trying hard to be good, obeying the Ten Commandments, anything you can think of that's something that you do to earn merit with God is not the way of the cross. It's a radical inward transformation where God makes you new from the inside out. And so the issue for the Galatians was, Paul's like, I don't care if you've been circumcised or not circumcised. I mean, I I care because it's a big issue of false teaching. But the real issue for me, Paul's saying, is have you experienced this new creation? Have you been regenerated? The Bible talks about this regeneration in the Old Testament with some very interesting imagery. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. This is God speaking. God says, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and be careful to obey my rules. Every single one of you is born with a dead stony heart that's resistant to God. And God has to come in and replace that heart of stone and give you a new spiritual heart. Paul says it this way in Titus chapter 3. Verses 4 through 7. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. So we're not saved by works, but according to his own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal, that renewal, that inward renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the ultimate question for you this morning is, have you experienced this inward transformation? Are you radically new from the inside out because God has saved you, God has changed you, you are a new creation in Christ? Has this happened to you? Has it happened to you? Have you been transformed radically? That's number two. Let's look at the third truth that this passage of Scripture brings it finally to a close. Here's the third truth. The gospel grants us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Spiritual blessing. Now Paul concludes this in verse 16. For all who walk by this rule. Now what does he mean by walk by this rule? Remember in Galatians the term walking means your lifestyle your, your total manner of being, your, your habit. What's the rule that he's saying you need to walk by? The rule is not the Ten Commandments. It's not the law. What he's saying is this truth I've been teaching all throughout Galatians, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that has to be the embodiment of who you are, the gospel. You need to walk by the truth that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's not by works. You must live the gospel-centered life. And then Paul gives three very specific blessings. Most of his letters end with these types of blessings, but I think they're very important for us to look at. What are these spiritual blessings? These aren't all the spiritual blessings, but there are three he lists here. The first is peace. For all who walk by this rule 
peace. Now, what is peace? There is an objective peace that comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven and you have a right relationship with God, that you are not guilty. There's the objective peace, that you're not guilty forever before God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's something you have. An objective standing before God where your sins are forgiven. They're never to be brought up before you again. You are once and for all declared righteous before God. It's a permanent peace. But there's also the experience of peace that you get. There's that subjective sense of knowing that God is with you, that you have that peace. You feel it in your heart. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So this blessing of peace, what should it do? It should lead you to boast in the cross. It should lead you to glory in the cross. Now what's the second blessing he says? And for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy. Mercy. Mercy is that steadfast love of God where he spares us for, from his wrath because Christ took our punishment in our place. Now what do we deserve? Let's be real honest. What do all of us deserve? We deserve hell. But instead of getting hell, we get mercy. God withdraws punishment and gives us his steadfast love, mercy. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God being rich, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Having God's mercy should lead you to glory in the cross. So we've got peace with God. We've got mercy. But then look down at verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, with your spirit, brothers, and in grace. You may say, what's the difference between mercy and grace? I think people ask me this all the time. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, which is hell which is justice. That's, that's mercy, not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, and that is love and acceptance and forgiveness. So mercy is God's withholding something you deserve, hell. Grace is getting something you don't deserve, his love, his mercy. And again, that should let us joyfully obsess in the cross. Now who gets this? Well, he calls us brothers, brothers and sisters, verse 18. But in verse 16, he says, upon the Israel of God. Interesting statement there, the Israel of God. Do you realize that the Israel of God consists of both Jews and Gentiles who've been grafted into one family, that have been adopted together into God's family? Romans 9, 6 says this, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Just because you're an ethnic Jew does not necessarily mean you're part of Israel. Now, you may be ethnically Jewish, but you're not part of Israel. Being part of Israel means you have faith in Christ. You, you're actually Abraham's true child through faith in Christ. Go back to Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You're Abraham's offspring. Philippians 3.3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So who's the Israel of God? Saved Gentiles like us. Okay, we're wild olive shoots. 
We're not part of the original branch. We've been grafted in. There is the original olive branch, which is Israel. And one day, there's going to be a massive, I believe, conversion of Jewish people. And there will be one people of God grafted together. That's why Paul says in Romans 11, 25, and 26, Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be aware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Don't ask me how I understand this, but supposedly, according to the scripture, there is a hardening of the the Jews going on right now until God's perfect timetable when he's going to unlift that veil and there will be a massive conversion of Jews and there will be one church, one Israel, one body of Christ made of Jews and Gentiles, the the olive shoot and the olive tree coming together as as one, the Israel of God. Now, there's one final truth here that can be a difficult pill to swallow. Paul says, listen, we've been born again. We're a new creation in Christ. And we receive every spiritual blessing there is in Jesus. We've got peace. We've got mercy. We've got grace. But let me just give you a warning. If you make it your life's ambition to glory and obsess in the cross, it will inevitably bring persecution. It will bring hardship. It will bring trial. Notice what Paul says. In verse 17, I don't want to pass over this. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. What are these marks? It's the word stigmata. It's not what you may think about, all these weird things that people talk about, stigmata, and and some movies that have been made about it. It literally means Paul is carrying around physical scars from his numerous beatings, all for Jesus. Acts chapter 14, verse 19. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Paul got stoned so much that everybody thought he was left for dead. He didn't die, but he was almost to the point of death being pelted with rocks. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 25. Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. Paul could stand up and say, listen, if you want to see somebody who has physical marks in their body for following Jesus, for boasting in Jesus, let me take off my tunic and you can look at my back and see the marks of Christ on my body. The stigmata. Now here's another way the word stigmata is used. Stigmata was also used for the branding of slaves. Slaves would be branded with a hot iron by their master to carry around the marks that they belonged to that master. And think about Paul for a moment. Paul was called to a special apostolic ministry where he was a slave of Christ. God called him out and said, you're going to be my servant. But do you realize that all of us who are Christians are slaves to God? Romans 6.22. But now that you've been set free from sin... And have become slaves of God. The fruit you get 
leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You're probably not going to get beaten like Paul. You're probably not going to have marks in your body like Paul. You're probably not going to get stoned, but the principle is the same. If you live your life with Christ as the center and you obsess over Jesus and he is your life and he's all you talk about and he is the sum and substance of who you are and you live for Jesus publicly and boldly, you better expect to receive some marks. You're going to be marked by the enemy. You're going to be marked by the culture. It's going to get worse and worse. I'm not going to water it down. In this day and age, it's going to get worse and worse to truly stand up for Jesus. And we need to be ready to be a people that are going to boast in the cross no matter what. Because here's the issue. The world may think you're foolish. The world may think you're crazy. The world may think you're off your rocker. The world may think you're, you're a fanatic, you're bigoted, you're narrow-minded, you don't know what you're talking about. The world may throw all types of things at you because of your stance, but at the end of the day, would you much rather say, I boast in Jesus, and I could care less what the world says. My one boast is Jesus. He's who I'm going to appear for on that final day. You're not going to stand before those people that made fun of you on the final day. You're going to stand before your Savior. And are you going to glory in the cross above all? One of my favorite hymns, poignant, powerful. It's written by Isaac Watts. When I survey the wondrous cross. And I think it was written especially in light of this passage of Scripture. So let me read to you the words. And as I read these, act like you've never heard them. Let them hit you for the very first time. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns composed so rich a crown. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So my question for you is, have you so joyfully obsessed in the cross of Christ that you can say like Isaac Watts, Jesus has my soul, he demands my life, and I'm going to give him my all. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Lord Jesus, as we take your supper, we come to your table this morning. We want to be a people that, as Emmanuel Baptist Church at this time in this place, we're not ashamed of the cross.
Lord, we want to boast in the cross. We want to pour hatred on our, on our pride. We want to submit ourselves totally to you as our God and King. And so, Lord, as we come to your supper, we know it's a means of grace whereby you spiritually nourish us. You meet us right where we are. You remind us of your love for us. We remember your love displayed. And we proclaim your death until you come. So, Jesus, help us in this Lord's Supper to Think about the past to remember the cross. And Lord, in the present, help us to remember and to realize that you are ministering to us right here and now through the Holy Spirit. And Lord, as the future, help us to be those that await your coming and proclaim your death until you come. So may this Lord's Supper truly be a joyful time where we glory and we boast in the cross of Christ. And we celebrate the fact that we are new creations in Christ. The old has gone away. Behold, the new has come. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.